We were Cree and we were Scottish. We were comfortable with that. We had our own way of living. We had a vision of how our future might be. But we could have only have found our way to that future if we'd been left alone. And we weren't left alone. Albert McLeod, a Winnipeg Matee whose Isle of Lewis-born ancestor joined the Hudson's Bay Company. That statement has long struck me as the most poignant cry of the heart I've encountered in an entire lifetime immersed in frontier history. That sense of a, of a path not taken, the desire to simply be left alone and knowing that the tide of so-called civilization will not and, and cannot ever simply leave you alone. It hits hard. There's a romantic notion that there was a special affinity between the Scottish Highlanders and the native peoples they encountered in North America. John Buchan, who would serve as Governor General of, uh, of Canada in the early 20th century, and who uh, incidentally wrote what are considered some of the very first modern thrillers, The 39 Steps and Green Mantle, among others. Um, and those are, are definitely on the Frontier Partisans bookshelf. Uh, Buchan believed that Scots were exceptional in their ability to, quote, get inside the skin of remote people. Like all romantic notions, there's some truth to this belief, quite a bit of truth in it, in my estimation. But as always with history, it's complicated. Were the Highland Scots unique? Not really. The, the French Canadians, for example, give nothing up to the Scots in the arena of integrating with native peoples. The, the Corrier de Bois went native almost as soon as they set foot in the, in the woods of the, of the north in Canada. And they, they integrated very thoroughly with, uh, with native people right from the, uh, the earliest part of the 17th century. And not all Scotsmen by any means related well with native peoples. But all that said, broadly taken, I think there's something to be said for the belief that the Highlanders and the Indians at least had a basis for a real and meaningful connection. And that connection is found in the, the North American fur trade. Colin G. Calloway writes in his White People, Indians, and Highlanders, Highland Scots were not unique in the range and nature of their interactions with Indian peoples. But in the vast colonial encounter that is American history, Highlanders and Indians came together in unusually large numbers and across huge stretches of the continent. They brought to their encounters their own stories, mythologies, memories, and experiences, and they developed intricate and sometimes intimate relations. They fought in colonial conflicts, clashed over land, and met and married in the fur trade. They wove tangled webs of family and allegiance, and their, off uh, their offspring often forged roles for themselves as mediators and culture brokers. They also built new societies together. Highlanders met Indians on the peripheries of empire, and where they lived and slept side by side, they created fluid communities held together by shared experiences and interests, children, and ties of kinship rather than allegiance to the state. For a time, Michael Fry suggests, Highlanders and Indians offered an alternative model of American development. Everywhere in North America, the fur trade relied for its operation on Indians, and almost everywhere in the fur trade, there were Highland Scots. 
From the middle of the 18th century to the middle of the 19th, Highland Scots and their sons by Indian women dominated the trade across, across large stretches of North America. It was an enterprise in which Highlanders and Indians participated jointly, although they engaged in it for different purposes, occupied diverse roles, and understood the exchange in dissimilar ways. It was also a way of life in which the Highland traders and Indian people interacted, often on a daily basis. Indian peoples far removed from European settlements were pulled into the commercial systems of the Atlantic world. Scots from the northern fringes of Britain were drawn into the communal networks of the Indian world. Highland traders injected capitalist values and practices into the Indian's world, even as capitalism transformed the tribal world in the Scottish Highlands. Calloway always articulates these themes so eloquently, and uh, I just think very highly of all of his his books, and uh, they're really fundamental to the Frontier Partisans Library and to my own outlook on on the themes that we're exploring, not just in this podcast, but, uh, but you'll see that thread all the way through all the work that I do. Uh, speaking of threads, there were two strands of the fur trade in which the Highlanders were, were deeply enmeshed. Across the southern tier of the Trans-Appalachian interior of North America, the trade in deerskins was an immense economic driver. Hundreds of thousands of deerskins were exported to England and Europe each year, and they were turned into everything from bridges to gloves to saddles, all kinds of uses for, for the deerskin. Um, and the number of skins is, is just absolutely mind-blowing. In 1764, John Stewart, who was the son of a Jacobite merchant from Inverness, who would eventually become the British superintendent of Indian affairs for the southern colonies, estimated that 800,000 pounds of deerskins had been traded just in that year. Um, and there were years and years where hundreds of thousands of, of skins were traded. American long hunters from Virginia and the Carolinas, men like Daniel Boone, took plenty of skins literally to make a buck. Um, that's the, the deerskin became the... Uh, an item of exchange that was referred to as a buck. That's why the dollar is is referred to as a buck to this day. Um, so hunters, American colonial hunters, participated in this in this deerskin trade. But the majority of the deerskins were exported through trade with the native peoples, the Cherokee, the Muscogee or Creek, the Chickasaw, Choctaw, and others in that southern tier of the uh, the Trans Appalachian. Uh, frontier wilderness. Highland Scots were all in on this trade, and they became integral parts of the the native societies in in the states of what's now Tennessee, Georgia, uh, Alabama, Mississippi. Lachlan McGilvery was a trader who married into the influential Wind Clan of the Creek Nation and created a massive trade network. And because the Creek were matrilineal, his son, Alexander McGilvery, was eligible to become the principal chief of the Creek Nation. And Alexander McGilvery is a, a prime example of the, the polyglot kind of society that grew up in the frontier borderlands in the mid to, 18th, uh, mid to the late 18th century. Um, you know, that, that alternative model of American development. His father was a Scotsman. His mother, Sehoy Marchand, was uh, Creek and French. And as 
chief in the uh, post-Revolutionary War era, McGilvery did his best to preserve Creek sovereignty and lands in the face of an aggressively expansive new U.S. republic. Uh, he worked with the Spanish in Florida to check American influence and granted trading rights to a Florida-based firm called Panton Leslie and Company, made up of, you guessed it, Scotsmen, who built a trading empire that stretched from the Bahamas to western Tennessee, mostly operating in Creek territory uh, with uh, mule pack trains. And during this period, dozens and maybe hundreds of, of boys of Scottish descent were sent off to live among the Creeks so that they might become cultural and trade inter- intermediaries, that they would learn the culture and the, and the language. And, of course, those boys grew up to become integrated through, through marriage um, and relationships with, with Creek women. Uh, Scottish names just proliferated amongst the Creek and the Choctaw and the Chickasaw and what are now states of Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. And the influence of these Highlanders was profound, but it was temporary. They, they worked to preserve traditional native sovereignty and territorial integrity, while at the same time they were out of self-interest, leading an adaptation into that capitalist market economy that was growing up in the in the beginning of the 19th century. And there were a lot of tensions inherent, inherent in this hybrid cultural world they were creating. And those tensions broke like an earthquake on a fault line in a civil war in the Creek Nation in 1813. Traditionalists who were influenced by the Shawnee uh, leader Tecumseh's efforts to create a a united pan-Indian resistance to American expansion, resisted factions that were seeking accommodation and adaptation to American governance. And there were descendants of of Highland Scots on on both sides of that conflict. And it was a, a terrible, terrible, utterly brutal war that uh, that broke out in 1813 and 14 and with uh, an attack by the Creek on the American uh, outpost in, at Fort Mims. And uh, 1813, 1814, there was a, a really, really nasty counterinsurgency campaign waged in that southern tier of, of uh, in what would become the American Deep South. David Crockett, fought in that war under the command of future President Andrew Jackson, and Jackson would later force the Creeks and other southern Indians west of the Mississippi in the Indian removal of the 1830s, which we know as the the Trail of Tears. And thus that multicultural, hybrid, sort of alternative form of American development was mostly swept away in the early part of the 19th century. At the end of our previous episode, I mentioned that the Loyalist Highlanders of New York's Mohawk Valley ended up in Canada after the American Revolution and became major players in the fur trade. Many Highlanders signed on with the Northwest Company, which operated out of Montreal and was a major competitor to the Hudson's Bay Company before the British government forced the two companies 
to merge in the 1820s. The Norwesters were a rambunctious bunch, and they really aggressively pushed into the hinterlands of Canada chasing sources of beaver fur, which was in massive demand, mostly for felt hats. Calloway writes, Many of the key figures in the Northwest Company lived before the Revolution as tenants in the Mohawk Valley estates of Sir William Johnson, where they had seen Indian trade and diplomacy firsthand and developed new ties of alliance and patronage. Forced north by the Revolution, they took their new skills and connections to the Northwest Company. The Northwest Company partners behaved as though they were chiefs of a transcontinental clan. Their names have been likened to a roll call of the clans at Culloden. They included at one time or another seven Simon Frasers, four Finleys, five Camerons, six McTavishes, seven McLeods, eight McGilveries, 14 each of Grants and Mackenzies, and so many McDonalds that they had to differentiate themselves by including hometowns in their, surna in their surnames, as in John McDonald of Garth. Their families intermarried extensively, which more than compensated for the company's organizational instability. Highland backgrounds, clan loyalties, kin ties, and self-interest bound Scots traders together in webs of loyalty that often transcended allegiance to king or company and frustrated non-Scots unable to break into the network. The term is totally anachronistic, of course, but nowadays we'd, we'd probably call uh, such an arrangement uh, the Highland Scots Mafia. The most famous of the Highlander Norwesters was Alexander Mackenzie, a field partner with the Northwest Company, who in 1793 would lead the first exploring expedition to cross North America. And that expedition inspired Thomas Jefferson to send the Corps of Discovery, or more commonly known as Lewis and Clark Expedition, uh, across the Louisiana Territory and the Rocky Mountains all the way to the Pacific. Like many of the Canadian fur trade men, Mackenzie was born on the Isle of Lewis, and his family, who were quite poor, um, emigrated to New York in 1775 and, and landed in the Mohawk Valley. And uh, soon enough, the American Revolution broke out, and there was a, uh, a, quite a, a terrible civil war in the Mohawk Valley. And uh, his father, Mackenzie's father, joined a loyalist regiment and sent his family, including young Alexander, to Montreal for their safety. And uh, after the American Revolution was over, um, Mackenzie, Alexander Mackenzie became an apprentice and accounting clerk um, for the, the Northwest Company. And he rather quickly moved up in the company to become a field partner and was assigned to a, uh, a trading post out in the, in the hinterlands called Fort Chippewyan. Um, on Lake, Lake Athabasca. And again, like many fur trade men and many frontiersmen of, of the, the North Woods, Mackenzie became quite obsessed with the idea of finding a Northwest Passage, a, a water passage, a water highway that would lead across the continent and open out onto the Pacific and allow for a direct rate, a direct route for trade with China. And he led actually two expeditions uh, seeking the Northwest Passage. Um, one ended up um, 
in uh, bumping into the the Arctic Sea before the uh, the second one actually did lead to the Pacific. Um, Mackenzie was not dismayed to uh, have definitively debunked the idea that there was, in fact, a Northwest Passage. There wasn't, and uh, his expedition pretty conclusively proved that. His expeditions also proved very conclusively that there was a vast empire of fur in the Canadian West. Mackenzie was unquestionably one of the greatest explorers of his age, although it has rightly been pointed out in recent histories that he was able to undertake his prodigious treks because he was ably assisted by native guides for whom the Canadian wilderness was not undiscovered territory. Mackenzie's fascinating figure to me. Um, He was a hard driver. He didn't really integrate with the land or its inhabitants, Um, he wasn't really all that interested in the fur trade per se. Um, he really, he was the kind of man who really wanted to make a mark in the world, uh, to dominate and to achieve deeds that would allow him to, to, to cut a big swagger amongst the, the big wheels back in, in Montreal and he did that in, in more ways than one, as we'll, we'll see in a minute. Um, but he, he was really fundamentally a British imperialist with a dramatic sense of geopolitical potential. Um, he really is almost like a prototype of the, the Victorian-era British explorer um, who, who was kind of compelled to make these these giant journeys across very difficult terrain kind of for its own sake um, and to expand the the territories of the the British Empire and the man liked to party <laughs> oh man did he like to party in his recent book, the company, The Rise and Fall of the Hudson's Bay Empire, Stephen Bown uh, quotes George Landman, who was a lieutenant in the Corps of Royal Engineers, who described um, the gatherings that would occur in Montreal at a gentleman's club called the Beaver Club. And uh, Mackenzie was the, the life of the party at these kinds of, of gentlemen's gatherings. Landman said, In those days, we dined at four o'clock, and after taking a satisfactory quantity of wine, perhaps a bottle each, the married men retired, leaving about a dozen to drink their health. We now began in right earnest and true Highland style, and by four o'clock in the morning, the whole of us had arrived at such a degree of perfection that we could all give the war whoop, as well as Mackenzie and McGilvery, we could all sing admirably. We could all drink like fishes, and we all thought we could dance on the table without disturbing a single decanter. But on making the experiment, we discovered that it was all a complete delusion, and ultimately we broke all the plates, glasses, bottles, etc., and the table also, and worse than all, the heads and hands of the party received many severe contusions, cuts, and scratches. Bound notes that, Other accounts recall prodigious meals of venison steaks, roasted beaver tails, and pickled bison tongues, 
and revelers too drunk to stand or sit slumped on the floor grasping for a final bottle of spirits. The evening often ended in the broken table being upended and the staggering celebrants clamoring aboard for a jolly reenactment of a canoe shooting rapids, propelled by bellowing gentlemen paddling away with their walking sticks, fire pokers, and soup ladles. It isn't hard to imagine that Mackenzie's later kidney issues stem from this life. Uh, you think? So, Alexander Mackenzie, the wild man that he was, uh, he was knighted for his exploratory efforts and uh, moved back to, to Scotland and married his 14-year-old cousin, Geddes. Um, and by the time he hit his 50s, all that guns and, guns and Roses level hard partying caught up with him and he died of kidney disease in 1820 at the age of either 55 or 56. Now, we can't talk of Scotsmen in the, the Canadian fur trade without, ta without uh, talking about George Simpson, although I have to say he is not a man whose company I much enjoyed on this historical trek. Simpson was brought in out of the sugar trade to run the Hudson's Bay Company starting in 1821. Again, hailing from the Isle of Lewis, he was a proud Highlander, and he claimed to enjoy the company of other Highlanders, although it's hard to discern that he really enjoyed anybody's company. Um, he was famous for canoeing at a record clip through all of the Hudson Bay Company domains, though, importantly, he never dipped a paddle himself. And uh, he had a, a bagpiper in tow in his entourage, and the piper would play him ashore at remote Hudson Bay Company posts. He believed it made an impression on the Indians, which it surely must have of one kind or another. But, uh, but Simpson was no traditional clan chieftain. He was every inch the a representative of the new breed of, of 19th century captains of industry. Um, over a 40-year reign as uh, the HBC's little emperor, which is literally what he was called, um, he ruthlessly and relentlessly pushed the, the Hudson's Bay Company to higher levels of efficiency and productivity. And he seemed to, to have little, if any, sense of warmth or, or sentiment. And uh, another Scotsman named McLean, who uh, got crossways of him, said that, that he was a, a fur trade Ebenezer Scrooge. And, and the shoe fits. That's the absolute image that, that was created in my mind in, in, in studying this man. He had absolutely none of the, the purported legendary affinity of the, the Highlander for Native peoples and for anybody else, really. Uh, he took country wives among the Indians on a pretty regular basis. Uh, he considered the practice in the early days as being beneficial to the company because it would uh, improve trade relations. Um, and, you know, he, he <laughs> a man has his needs after all. But uh, he, he discarded such women with the ease of disposing of, just taking off a, a worn out coat and tossing it aside. There was no companionship to these relationships at all. He referred to one of his mistresses as, the article or the commodity, and he referred to native concubines in general as bits of brown. So 
when civilization started to intrude upon the HBC domains, um, Simpson brought a European, an English wife to, to Canada and began to socially cut out men who had relationships with their bits of brown. And, and he had no sense that, that he was being hypocritical in, in doing this. Um, and he was, he was quite, quite rude and cruel in the manner in which he did that. Um, like I said, he's, he was, he's just an unpleasant man. But unpleasant as he was, he, you know, and, and I should say that, that this isn't 21st century revisionism looking backward. He was widely hated by his employees and everyone else. But he did preside over the Hudson Bay Company and the, the Northwest Company merger and the subsequent massive expansion of, of the HBC's domains into the into the West. He truly ruled an empire in its heyday, and it stretched all the way to my own stomping grounds here in the Pacific Northwest, where we find yet another formidable Scotsman, the factor at Fort Vancouver, John McLaughlin. If you ever get a chance to to tour Fort Vancouver, uh, it's well worth the time. It's a very well-preserved uh, recreation of uh, Hudson Bay Company fur outpost, a very important one. Uh, it's located in uh, just across the Columbia River from Portland, Oregon. Um, it's you know virtually surrounded by the uh, Portland-Vancouver urban area, but they do a really great job of of transporting you back to that 19th century fur trade area era when uh, when the Hudson's Bay Company dominated the the fur trade in what's now the Pacific Northwest and uh, and John McLaughlin was the chief factor there from 1824 to 1845 and that's the the chief factor of the Columbia district which is um, as as Callaway notes was larger than than Great Britain and uh, McLaughlin was known as the White Eagle because of he had a big shock of, of white hair. Um, Simpson, who kept what he called a character book that described virtually everybody that he encountered um, who worked for the company, described McLaughlin thus. He was such a figure as I should not like to meet in a dark night in one of the by-lanes in the neighborhood of London, dressed in clothes that had once been fashionable, but now covered with a thousand patches of different colors. His beard would do honor to the chin of a grizzly bear, his face and hands evidently showing that he had not lost much time at his toilet, loaded with arms and his own Herculean dimensions forming a tout ensemble that would convey a good idea of the highwaymen of former days." As you can probably imagine from listening to this podcast and, and reading the Frontier Partisans blog, McLaughlin is much my more my kind of man than George Simpson ever was. It's really in the lower ranks of the fur companies amongst the people who did the, the actual day-to-day work of the fur trade where we find that, that genuine melding of cultures and the the actuality of that purported Highlander affinity for, for native life and that alternative form of, 
of American development. Many of the Scots who worked in the fur trade built mixed-race families with Indian or Métis women. Uh, Métis um, has the same root as mestizo, by the way. It, it just means mixed, uh, mixed blood or mixed breed. Um, and the Métis were uh, a separately recognized culture in, in Canada and are today. Um, usually it's associated with the, the French um, and uh, native intermingling, but uh, there were also um, many, many Scots who would be considered Métis as well. So that's, that's how I'm using that. Um, and uh, so, so many Highland Scots married either, either native women or women who came out of this Métis culture. And, and those women were not mere bits of brown to them. And they were a real those were real relationships, uh, lasting relationships. Sometimes uh, men would return to to Scotland, and and uh, in the, the terminology of the of the country, turn off their their spouse to another another man, usually another white man. So that that did sometimes occur, but uh, but many many of these Scots Highlanders had lifelong relationships with, uh, with native or Métis women. And, uh, there were enough of them that, that it created a, a recognizable and, and somewhat separate culture. Um, one of my favorite, one of the most remarkable figures to come out of this culture was a, a Scott Chinook named Ranald MacDonald. And Randall McDonald was he was the son of, of a of a Highland Scot involved in the fur trade and a Chinook woman, um, and uh, his father the the Scotsman was was worried about him because uh, he believed that uh, that he was exhibiting the the tra- the traits of of wildness that were often associated with with so called half breeds and. Um, and sure enough, uh, Ranald was not interested in becoming a, a clerk and uh, longed for for adventure, and uh, and he really he really got it. Um, in 1848, at the age of 24, he took passage on a Yankee whaling ship because he wanted to go to Japan because he was convinced that the Japanese were related to American Indians. And, uh, of course, at that time, Japan was closed to, to foreigners. So when he got to Japan, he was arrested and, uh, and thrown in, in a prison in Nagasaki, where he stayed for, for seven months. But uh, he, he wound up being able to, to charm his, his captors, and uh, he ended up, as, as Callaway notes, uh, teaching English to Japanese interpreters, um, quote, the first teacher of English at a time when Japan was coming under increasing, increasing pressure from the outside world. And uh, it wasn't more than a, a couple more years in 1853, a few more years, in 1853, the Commodore Perry made his his visit to Japan and uh, made the first commercial treaty, the so-called opening of of Japan. And uh, so, 
Randall McDonald was a, a world traveler, and there's actually a, um, a statue of him um, in, uh, in Nagasaki and also in Rishiri in, in Japan. Um, interestingly enough, um, when he returned to the Pacific Northwest and, and was living on the Colville Indian Reservation, he was visited by Elizabeth Custer, who was the widow of that Custer, George Armstrong Custer, and she was on a on a trip through through the West in the summer of 1890, and uh, I'll I'll let Calloway pick up the story. Uh, she described him as a prince among paupers. When she inquired inquired about the dark skinned children, his nephews running about his home, the old man waved his hand over them and said, "They are all McDonalds." And no chief of a clan could have referred to his progeny in a more stately manner. Um, so that clan, that clan sentiment and relationship was extraordinarily persistent and, uh, and was a part of that Scots Metis culture that uh, did, in fact, represent a, a thwarted but real alternative form of American social and cultural development. But as we know, the advance of Euro-American civilization through the 19th century gradually marginalized mixed-race peoples in a society that that really became increasingly race-conscious as the century wore on. Uh, We we have a, a tendency, I think, to looking back through history to think that, that racial attitudes were, were a constant um, and only changed recently in American history or are changing um, recently in American history. But that's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And, uh, and racial attitudes really did harden considerably during the 18th century and, or the 19th century rather. And uh, curiously enough, um, particularly in the, in the wake of the American Civil War in the 1860s. And as civilization pushed further and further west, um, the idea of being what, what came to be called a quote-unquote squaw man um, really became a, a low status. It became a, a, an insult to call someone a, a squaw man, and mixed race families were marginalized socially and, and culturally um, in a way that they hadn't been when that was uh, quote unquote the the custom of the country. Um, as Albert McLeod lamented in that that quote at the very beginning of this this show, um, they they weren't left alone by a society that had no place and no future for them. So the culture was pushed aside and pushed down, and for a long time it wasn't even really culturally or historically acknowledged. And that's changed a lot in recent decades, which I think is an absolutely glorious thing. For It it really is truly a remarkable moment in frontier partisan history. So thank you for exploring it with me. In our next episode, we're going to return to the Highlands of Scotland to explore the life and legend of Rob Roy McGregor. Every frontier culture produces its outlaw heroes, of course, and uh, Rob Roy was that 
in Scottish legend. I want to give a shout out to Matthew, our most recent patron and a longtime reader and commentator on the Frontier Partisans blog. Uh, He's been uh, uh, gathering at the campfire there for many, many years. And uh, thank you for the support, Matthew. It's much appreciated. Those of you who are interested in supporting the Frontier Partisans podcast and, and the blog uh, may, may do so through our Patreon page. Uh, the link to that is in the show notes. And uh, coming up here within just a few days, um, there is a, a new patron benefit that I'm calling Side Trails. And that, uh, that's a brief uh, podcast special to patrons only and uh, and those will be done on a, on a periodic basis. I don't want to commit to a, a, a set time schedule, but uh, just as, as the title implies, it's a, a little trip down some of the interesting side trails that, uh, that manifest themselves as I explore frontier parts in history. So if you're interested in going down to the, going down those side trails with me, um, please uh, consider uh, joining up at the Patreon page. And uh, as always, the support is greatly appreciated, and, and so is, is the listening. And uh, please share the podcast with other history-minded folks and, and, uh, and help us uh, grow our, our little fur trade empire out there. So uh, that's it for, for this edition, and uh, we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>